Really excited to be joined by Carson Block, Chief Investment Officer of Muddy Waters Capital. Carson, welcome to Forward Guidance. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to have you here, Carson. You are a pioneer in the world of short selling, a field that I think is highly misunderstood, uh, not only by the investing public, but by the, the general public. Can you uh, tell us you know, what, what is short selling and how did, you, how did you get into it? Because I think it's a really fascinating journey you had. Sure. So, I mean, I think it's important to understand there's a difference between what short selling traditionally has been and what um, I, as an activist short seller, do. Um, generally speaking, short selling has been a strategy where, I mean, for the most part, uh, short sellers have looked for businesses that are melting ice cubes and um, they think that they're going to deteriorate faster or more than the market thinks. And so they, you know, they, they sell them short and if the stocks go down, they make money. Now, you know, in, in the past several decades, um, the investors for short selling strategies have not gone to short sellers because they're looking to make money. The idea is that large allocators go to short sellers and say, we're long the world. And as a result, when things are good, you know, we, we, we do well, but things are bad, we lose money. So, you know, we want to get to this point over time from here in terms of our returns, but rather than it being really rocky, we'd like to smooth it out. And so by having a short selling you know, portion of the book that's um, dedicated to short selling, um, the idea being that you ultimately get there, but in a, with a less volatility. Um, now that's broken down since the financial crisis because it's until recently markets have been basically just up and to the right. <clears throat> so that you know, so it's been very, very, very difficult for traditional short sellers and. You know, the, the large uh, short selling asset managers, I mean, they're what they manage now in terms of um, assets is is a fraction of what they what they used to manage. And, you know, the I mean, substantial, I mean, virtually all, I think, short dedicated managers have shut down since the financial crisis. Now, what I do is activist short seller. So short selling is a niche and I'm in a niche of a niche. And the, what we do is not only do we take short positions, but we communicate these positions or our theses to the market. And we're not out there looking for melting ice cubes. And because this idea of, you know, if I went public and I said, hey, I think that the margins are going to deteriorate a lot faster on company X than the market does, you cannot win that argument at this moment in time. Um, you really have to wait and see what happens. Instead, what we ask, and I think this is similar to substantially uh, all other activist short sellers, you know, we at Muddy Waters, we ask three questions about a company. Question one, has the material information that the company has disseminated been materially correct? Another way of asking this is, has there been a lie of commission? Has, question two is, has the company disseminated all material information, or has there been a lie of omission in another way of phrasing it? Question number three is, does the market act, understand, does it interpret correctly the information that has been released? So if we can answer no to any of those questions, um, and usually we're answering no to 
you know, like more than one question when, you know, when this arises, but we can answer no to any of those questions. In theory, this could be a candidate for activist short selling. Um, so really what we specialize in doing is we specialize in just digging through complex accounting to understand what the economic reality of the business is. And is that reality, does it contradict not only the numbers that the company has put out, but the narrative that the company has put out as well? And so if, if that turns out to be the case, then we will publish and we will try to explain what's really going on. Now, in the most extreme cases, and this is what you know, we're best known for, but the most extreme cases, um, we find outright fraud um, where there's you know, there's true lying from a, so fraud is a legal conclusion, right? And I think the bigger issue that the world faces isn't the number of actual frauds that are listed. I think the bigger problem the world faces, and it's not just in markets, it's really in all aspects of life, is the reality that one can violate the spirit of a law while maintaining, while staying within the letter of it. And we can thank the good folks who work at law firms and bill at $2,000 an hour for enabling, you know, this world that we live in. So that's what we do as activist short sellers and, you know, as contrasted uh, to traditional short sellers. Right. So the traditional short selling model is uh, investors are long a whole bunch of Apple, but they want to hedge their books. So maybe the short sellers will short something like IBM saying the, the growth model for IBM, it's just, it's just not going to happen. And then if IBM stays flat and Apple explodes higher, like has happened over the past 10 years, that's actually good because they hedged their books. What you do is completely different. You are hunting for companies that are, if not outright fraudulent, uh, making material misstatements to investors, uh, about either about their products, about their revenues, about about their, their debts. Uh, Carson, you said, uh, you, you referenced at the end of what you said about lawyers, uh, people charging uh, $2,000 an hour. It's my understanding, you actually uh, began as a lawyer. So tell us, how did you go from becoming a lawyer to, to uh, becoming an activist short seller? Well, actually, I middled as a lawyer. I began as, a, as an investor. So I grew up in the investment industry and my father um, uh, exposed me from a young age and was bringing me into uh, work over the summers, I guess, starting when I was in eighth grade. So I had a lot of investment background, but um, he was a very, I mean, he was literally known as one of the, if not the most bullish and credulous analysts on the street. And to illustrate that point, Shortly after I started this, you know, doing what I'm doing uh, 12 years ago, I was in New York and I sat down with um, a, uh, a journalist, an investigative financial journalist. Um, it's been around a long time. And he said to me, referring to my father, Bill, he said, I first heard of Bill Block when I took a sabbatical from journalism and I worked at a hedge fund and we had a strategy where we shorted everything your father ever put a buy recommendation on. <laughs> and the part that was really funny is um, the guy who worked for my father as a trader um, for, I don't know, the last, you know, five, six years of, of my father's career used to joke with my father that there's this one guy who will be devastated the day my father retires because he shorted everything my father ever put a buy <laughs> recommendation on. Now, I, I don't want to 
I'm not trying to beat my father up, but that was the nature of micro cap investing, right? These things could do very well for a while. And to be fair, like some of these things went, you know, way up. I mean, my father early in his career in the, you know, I think 60s and 70s, he was one of the first, um, he was on the buy side at the time to, uh, to say he really, you know, to really go strong on McDonald's, buying it, H&R Block. So, but in any event, I grew up around this and, you know, I couldn't appreciate at the time, but the lingo that I heard constantly was um, my father and his colleagues or other investors, you know, they would talk about a given CEO or CFO and say, yeah, he really knows how to tell the story. And they would say things like, this is a really sexy story. It has a lot of sex appeal. And I didn't appreciate at that time just how critical that is to equity investing. Like, and I'm, I'm now teaching my eight-year-old son, you know, about investing. And, you know, I kind of ran through the classical financial um, view that the stock price is the dis discounted value of uh, future cash flows. So I gave him that, you know, bullshit. And then I said, but in reality, stocks trade on stories. It's all about stories. It's all about narratives. That's what gets people to go out and buy the stock. So I came from that world and I, you know, I graduated uh, university in 98, went to China for you know, six months roughly because I was looking to start an A-share research business there, realized I was, you know, like a decade too early at least, came back to the States did investment banking at a bulge bracket for um, maybe nine months, hated it. And then I started working with my father. And so during 1999 to 2002, you know, we were long only, um, you know, we were quasi sell side. We were producing uh, research that we distributed to institutional clients of my father's. And um, yeah, I mean, we were just, you know, we were just getting lied to um, left, right, and center by a lot of managements. And so this was micro cap, small cap space. Um, one of the companies that, um, that my father had, I mean, he had had a strong buy on it for several years before I joined him was a company called Rentway. And I remember um, I developed an institutional client, so a fund manager, um, and we brought the CFO of Rentway, this guy, Jeff Conway, to see her. And so Conway's sitting across the table from her. And at one point he points over at my father and he says, in the 17 quarters, Bill has been covering us. We've never missed one of his estimates, not once. That's how good a handle we have on the numbers. Well, the irony being, it was one or two weeks later, they were supposed, Conway was supposed to meet my father in New York but he didn't show up that day and the stock didn't open. It was halted. And guess what? <laughs> Accounting fraud. So, you know, Conway pled guilty, did some time, found Jesus, came out a pillar of the community. And like this was happening to us, I felt, you know, not the adjudication of fraud, but, you know, I felt like there were more companies that came in and defrauded us than just than just that. Um, but, you know, at the same time this was happening, because, you know, you might say today, well, you know, that's micro cap, small cap world. So, you know, but this was happening at the largest companies in the world, you know, Enron, WorldCom, HealthSouth, Tyco, etc. So from top to bottom, the market was filled with predatory managements and liars. And that really disillusioned and disheartened me. Because I wanted, you know, ever since I figured out I wasn't going to be able to be a baseball player, 
I wanted to go into investing. And, you know, and I'm sitting there thinking like, well, if everybody's lying to me, like, how can I do this? So I decided to go to law school because I had this amorphous notion that going to law school would help me better protect myself against these predators in the markets. Um, and, you know, look, I had had a academically, you know, um, going all the way back to, you know, elementary school. I had been a massive underachiever. Like my whole attitude was, I just want to get through this thing called school. I'm going to do the bare minimum possible. I mean, I did the bare minimum to get into AP classes, but you know, I was like the, the you know, just the the fuck up of the AP classes. But I got to law school, you know, so I had the same attitude. Like I'm gonna, I'm here for just a few classes. Everything else is just bullshit. Like I don't care about torts and crim law, etc. But a strange thing happened. I after having worked for a few years and after having actually wanted to be in law school, I was really engaged. And so for the first time in my life, I mean, it wasn't hard because I was so engaged. I became um, a top student in my school. And, um, you know, I had, uh, so I had the opportunity to join, um, you know, either Kirkland and Ellis in Chicago or Jones Day in Shanghai when I came out of law school. And uh, these are both top firms. And Jones Day Shanghai was the non-consensus choice, but you know, and everybody I asked for advice, including the partner in charge of Jones Day Shanghai, who gave me the offer, said, start out in the US as a lawyer. If you wanna to come to China, get a few years of experience in the US, you'll be better trained, then come here. I ignored that advice, went to China, and I practiced law for, I don't know, maybe a year and a quarter at Jones Day before um, I got antsy and I saw opportunities. And so I, I left Jones Day um, originally looking to set up an asset management firm based in Singapore. But the idea is that I would go to like tier four, tier five cities in China and, you know, like look to you know, look to gain clients, you know, manage their offshore assets. But in a lot of ways or in some ways, I, I knew that I was kidding myself because um you know, like, what does that involve? Okay, we're talking like factory owners, and they generally have, um, although they could be quite wealthy, um, they generally have a very unsophisticated view of the world, they haven't traveled a lot, they're generally not well educated. And, you know, I mean, it's basically just going to be going to KTV all the time, getting drunk and, you know, watching these guys like, you know, take down hookers. And um, I don't know, like I, you know, so I was kind of deluding myself that, I, that I'd be down for that. And then a friend of mine came along because he was starting the first self-storage business in mainland China. And I, you know, he wanted some money. So I said, okay, I'll give you some money. He wanted a little help at the beginning getting it off the ground. I said, okay, I'll help you getting it off the ground. And then I was really enjoying this because we were starting, I mean, brand new service in China. And, um, you know, we were marketing it as a near luxury type service. And, um, yeah, and then, then my friend got into some financial trouble and had to pull the ripcord and, you know, I was left with the company and um, that's when things got very hard and unfun. So the short of it is by 2009, late 2009, I was barely keeping the self-storage company from failing. Um, so success, I had redefined success as not failing and I think that's, that's something that, you know, like entrepreneurs often have to end up doing. Um, 
And my father got interested in some of these uh, Chinese companies that had listed in the US via reverse merger. So these micro cap Chinese companies. I had no reason to believe that these things were frauds. I mean, I still lived in this world where, you know, that 99% of investors do where they think that auditors are performing anti-fraud um, uh, checks and that they, you know, they're there to root out fraud. I mean, it, like, I'm not being facetious here. It, it's literally not true. That is not the mandate of an auditor. What is the mandate of an auditor? What, what do they do? So auditors are there to ensure that the correct audit standard or correct accounting standard is applied and that it's applied correctly. Now they generally, they often fail in that regard as well because what happens is if a company wants to be aggressive in either the standards it applies well, and or the way it applies standards, you know, the, like their lawyers will get together with the auditor's lawyers and they'll kind of negotiate over, you know, what sort of very vague and odd disclosure gets buried in the middle of the annual report somewhere. And then, you know, once the auditor's counsel says, yeah, you know, like we're okay, we think that you kind of sort of somewhere mentioned that, you know, you're being aggressive, then they go ahead and do it. But that's, that's what auditors are there for. They're not there checking like, oh, you know, are they, are they lying about this? Because the, the professional standards of auditing presume that the information, so a lot of people don't get this, the company is responsible for preparing its financial statements. The auditors do not prepare the company's financial statements. So effectively, management prepares the financial statements. So the auditor's professional standards presume that all information and documents being given to auditors uh, are truthful. And their remit is not to try to figure out whether they're not. And when you think about just how professional service companies work, and this includes audit firms, the grunt work is not done by the senior people who have the most experience and skill. Okay, so the people who actually go through the documents are the auditors who are like one or two, maybe three years out of school. So what the fuck do they know about a false document? Like, how are they gonna spot it? And PS, even if they think there's something off, I, you know, a lot of times I don't think they've got the, you know, the confidence in themselves to put their hands up and say, hey, there's a problem here. So in any event, that's that's the issue with auditors. But my question really going into looking at this this first company that my father, you know, really wanted me to diligence for him, uh, the company was called Orient's Paper. Like my question was, because this is basically what as a as a joint venture or as an attorney in China who represent clients doing joint ventures um, or foreign, you know, or wholly owned foreign enterprises. Um, you, you know, it's just, is the chairman stealing too much money out of the company? I mean, that's a form of fraud, but I'm separating the making up revenue fraud from the, you know, like we've got undisclosed related party transactions where we're sucking a little bit too much money out of the company. So to me, the whole question was, is it an acceptable amount of theft or an unacceptable amount of theft? Because look, this is China, right? There was going to be theft. And I, you know, if, if anybody says, well, you, you know, I spend some time in China. Well, yeah, to tell us about to tell us about China. How is, you know, the U.S. is not some shining beacon of, you know, like fortitude and, and, and rectitude. But what in China in particular makes you say that? How are the standards different? This company was almost a total fraud. It had just reported $103 million in revenue, um, or that's what it was going to report for 2009. The real revenue was 
seemed like two and a half to three million dollars. So it was like a, and, and this was systemic among these Chinese companies. So, um, you know, so the short, the short of it is at this point, I got into this by writing this one report. I didn't know why I was writing the report. Um, I just, you know, I felt like I had nothing to lose because my business was, you know, just painful. So there's a power in having nothing to lose. And, you know, the metaphor I like to, you know, uh, or the, you know, I like to use in this situation is that, uh, or the analogy is that, you know, I just threw the ball as far down the field as I could. And, you know, so June of 2010, I'm basically sitting in one small self-storage warehouse in Shanghai, China. And one year later, give or take, Bloomberg named me one of the 50 most influential in global finance, along with central bankers like Ben Bernanke and Christine Lagarde. So it was like winning the lottery. Um, and But to your question on China, um, what is China like? Well, that, that's kind of a broad one here, but um, let's, start, let's start with this. Um, it's a country that has a weak rule of law, okay? It's an emerging market. Now, China is not unique among EMs and FMs for having a high level of fraud, okay? That's kind of the nature of an EM or FM, especially so they have weak rules of law and, um, and a lot of corruption, um, a lot of fraud, theft, etc. What makes China unique, though, is that right around the time the dot-com bubble burst in 2001, China was admitted to the World Trade Organization. So we had in the West, you had all these banks, consulting firms, law firms that had gone on huge hiring binges, acquisition binges, because, you know, they were in the midst of the internet bubble and, you know, their models were showing, hey, we're going to, you know, grow our revenue, you know, forever. And that came crashing to a halt. And so there was an absence of a growth narrative at that time. But all of a sudden, whoa, China joined the World Trade Organization. So now everybody who was running around saying like, oh, you know, what are we going to sell as the growth narrative? And this was true in the public markets too, with public companies. China. So what made China unique is, you know, I think kind of in the, well, in the modern history of capital markets is that you had this weak rule of law, high levels of corruption, and a wall of money, a wall of money from developed markets that crashed into China because China was there to solve all of our problems. Well, you know, it wasn't ready for that money. And you know, I, I look, I moved back to China. So, yeah, I mean, as I've spent a total of maybe, you know, give or take six years of my life living in China. I, I studied Chinese in school. Um, I went there as an optimist and believing in a, you know, bright future for China. And I just became extremely disappointed um, as well by my time in China and felt that there was so much potential squandered. And you know, the mistakes that we make as, as Westerners going over there um, all the time is, you know, people will go to dinner in Shanghai on the Bund and, you know, you see all these gleaming skyscrapers, you know, and like, wow, you know, the Chinese are so good at building. We can't build shit like this nearly that fast. Well, yeah, but, you know, they build them like crap, <laughs> you know, like our building standards, you know, would, I mean, they can't build, they don't build anywhere close to our building standards. So I think in a way that's a great metaphor for China. Like 
behind the glass, it's not steel I-beams, it's a bunch of concrete and rebar that had too much sand mixed into the concrete and the glass is bad quality glass, but you know, from a distance, you can't tell, it looks the same. So, um, <clears throat> so, the, so the thing with, you know, the other thing with China that I think we never, you know, that people have a hard time understanding is as a former communist country, I mean, there, there's so much societal and moral rot and decay that came with communism. So the, the state and the employers, which were all state-owned basically, were extremely paternalistic. So for, you know, until sometime in the 1980s, you know, like your employer was kind of arranging marriages between, you know, two different employees. And um, that was, you know, people who were in the Don Wei or the, you know, work group. Um, and so as a result, what you got was this um, embedded mentality that um, the company, the employer, you know, is there to be sort of like your father figure in many ways. So people, you know, stole from the company. I mean, companies provided your, your spouses, your, you know, your housing. And, you know, for enterprising Chinese, they'd, you know, steal from the companies, but nobody cared because it's communism. And so all of a sudden that you created this private sector in China and the mentality didn't really adjust. There's still this view that, hey, you know, it's like, you know, this is my employer. Well, they're not giving me housing. Well, I have an opportunity to, to take this. So I'm going to take this. And there's also, you know, and I'd say this is just a, you know, this is just kind of a, you know, a, a, a cultural difference where, you know, here in the West, I mean, at least, you know, we like to think that, you know, the way it used to be when I grew up, um, it mattered getting rich. It mattered how you got rich, right? So you could get rich the right way, or you could get rich by hurting people, committing crimes. And there was a definite level of opprobrium expressed there. You know, China, it's just getting rich is just, it's viewed in isolation without the morals generally. And I'm not, you know, I'm not passing a moral judgment here. I'm just saying that that's the way it is. You're either, you know, it's binary. You're either, you either have money or you don't have money. It doesn't really matter how you got that money. I mean, unless it's an egregious situation, like, you know, you stole it from a children's hospital and the children's hospital collapsed during the earthquake, then of course people will be, you know, furious. But absent that, you know, it's just, there's not a lot of opprobrium for people who got money the wrong way. And it's very much a caveat um, emptor uh, society where it's like, you know, look, if you get scammed, that's on you. You're weak and stupid. Like, you know, why would you trust somebody? So to sum it up, and I mean, look, I could expound, you know, probably for days on, you know, my six years of lessons living in, you know, from living in China, but, um, I found the way that I try to sum it up to people um, is that I found living in China that the best defense against getting scammed is a good offense. And that's why when you, you know, you're on the street and you watch strangers interact with each other, you know, like in, you know, store clerk and, you know, shop owner and a shopper, a lot of times it's very aggressive and they're like yelling at each other, you know, and it's just, it's because everybody's playing offense in order to protect themselves and ensure that they're not getting scammed. And I just feel like it's, I mean, it's exhausting. And when I, you know, describe this to, to Westerners and I, you know, generally can spend a lot more time and field questions and, you know, and paint the picture with greater resolution. That's the, that's the reaction. A lot of people give me is that it sounds exhausting and yeah, it is.
This episode is brought to you by BCB Group, Europe's leading provider of crypto-friendly business banking for institutions in the crypto space. They also provide trading services, allowing you to trade FX and cryptocurrency quickly and at scale. They specialize in efficient execution of large orders in illiquid markets. So if you are an institution looking to make high volume trades, you need to check out BCB Group because a great trade idea is worth nothing if you can't execute it. And that is exactly what BCB Group helps you to do. Their mission is to empower the global financial revolution through sustainable and innovative banking. Really glad to have them as a sponsor. So if you want to take control of your digital assets, please check them out at bcbgroup.com slash jack. That's bcbgroup.com slash jack. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. What are some other techniques that you know, companies who are, are lying to investors uh, um, do? So there's, there's buying a fake company. And there's also this thing called round tripping. Um, um, what is that? And then, you know, can you use a, um, a Joy or, or YY as an example of that? We're talking China fraud. It, it's a lot harder to get away with stuff like this in the U.S. So to be clear, developed market fraud tends to be a lot less salacious. It's more capitalizing things that should be expensed, etc. But um, yeah, I mean, sometimes, so the auditors uh, of China companies back in, you know, 2011, 2012, they started trying a little bit harder. <clears throat> and so they would actually look at, in some cases, at the inflows and outflows of the bank account. So it's not just, hey, does the amount in the bank at the end of the period match what, you know, the company is showing it is. So if they're looking at the inflows and outflows, well, what has to happen then sometimes is... You know, you have to get revenue coming in or what looks like revenue. So same thing. You find a friendly, you know, third party. Maybe the company doesn't really exist. Maybe it's a company that does exist. Um, but you buy stuff from them or you invest in that. You know, so you uh, you buy an entity and then the owner of that entity, you know, like throws the money into another entity and then purchases services from you. And it comes back in in the form of of revenue. Um, and actually, I mean, something similar to this was going on during the dot-com bubble here in the U.S. where um, these companies were all buying advertising from each other and then it was coming back in in the form of revenue. But, um, you know, but in any event, uh, I mean, that was, you know, semi-closer call than, than what I'm, I mean, it was, I think, a closer call than just this complete illusion um, that, that we're talking about here of, of revenue. So, so round tripping is one way that um, you that they can fake revenue, and you can also rent cash balances in China as well if you need to actually throw some money in the account. I mean that's been an issue, and also one of the other things that happened when auditors started. So one of the adjustments that they made was um, they would go to the bank and look. A lot of times, branch level like senior branch level employees had been bribed and were in on this. Like they were in on the deceit of the auditor. Because again, like, what's the downside? And for companies stealing tens, hundreds of millions of dollars, um, you know, like paying somebody, I mean, these branch level employees are paid like nothing. So, you know, giving them enough money to commit what's basically a non-crime essentially um, in China, you know, it's, it's totally just a cost of doing business. So it, it's all logical. So because branch level employees, especially managers, were often in uh, or co-opted as part of these frauds, the auditor said, OK, we're going to go to the branch. We're going to deposit a token amount of money in the company's account, say like three RMB. 
And then we're going to have the branch employee print out the statement. And if we don't see a statement that shows that 3RMB going in there, then we know that there's a problem. So one of the so on the back of that, then all of a sudden Chinese companies began investing in wealth management products. Yes. All these yes. are high yielding, which these are just pieces of paper that they get from the branch. And so we saw this with NQ Mobile, which we uh, we exposed at the end of 2013. They actually published what they said were copies of the wealth management um, products, you know, the receipts for them. And the um, and, and the, the thing there was they they were so sloppy, like they 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 screwed up the interest rates because, you know, we were able to check online, like what were the interest rates that were offered by this bank on the, you know, on this size deposit between, you know, on these dates. And it's like the interest rates would be wrong or some of the dates would be wrong. So it's like they posted these copies and they were just obviously forgeries. But I mean, they had the support. They were, again, I think, you know, probably backed up or vouched for by branch managers. Um, but that's one of the ways that, you know, these companies tried to get around um, heightened scrutiny of, of the cash movements and the, and the cash balances. Um, but then, as I said, you can also rent balances. Um, now, I mean, YY is a situation where you, you know, so it's this platform and you suppose they have these entertainers who um, sing and they get these virtual gifts. So, you know, you, if you want to buy virtual gifts, you know, you send money in, you convert it to the Y, you know, to YB, which is their currency and you use it to buy virtual gifts and you reward the entertainers who keep you so entertained and da, da, da. And the, you know, YY never, it went public, I think in 2011. So part of that very problematic vintage. And early on, I mean, it was one of these, it was one of these things that just didn't make a lot of sense to people and the kind of the smart money, you know, the, the smart money consensus was they're laundering money because like their top 10, you know, we see the, the amounts of money that the top 10 were spending. Um, they seemed like they were probably Shanxi coal miners and they were just spending way too much. Well, one thesis was, oh, they're laundering money. Another thesis was that these are prostitutes and they're paying for it. But, you know, I'm like looking at the amounts of money some of these dudes are spending and it's like Wilt Chamberlain could not have slept with that many women like, you know, to, to make the like it just, you know, it wasn't possible. But back then, you know, when we when we thought it's either money laundering, prostitution or some combination thereof, it's like, well, that's a real business, you know, and like the realest business in China is probably a money laundering business. So, you know, like let's not touch it. But, not, a short, well, not a short because it's a legitimate business. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a real business like laundering yeah. money and, and, and prostitution, uh, facilitating prostitution. But it turns out none of that was true. Um, and, you know, what we, what we had over the years developed um, a capability to, uh, to do data analytics. So this is not something that we had in the early days of our business. So by late 2020, you know, like 2019, um, we had this capability. And so we, so combination of field work in China and actually working with some of these agents that facilitated, you know, the entertainers going on this platform and acted as their, the conduits for money coming from YY uh, and also looking at data analytics. But we realized that very little of the, of the money that's purportedly spent on the YY platform is actually being spent. I mean, a lot of it is just created out of thin air, but some other significant portion of it's being round tripped between YY and these agencies. So 
it turns out to be a substantially fraudulent company. So even, you know, our optim, even us being optimistic and credulous and believing that it was a legitimate prostitution or money laundering business was too optimistic and too credulous. So you know, YY Holdings, that stock has suffered a pretty material drawdown, you know, over the past year. And I look at the, the a lot of stuff that that you've been short, or other activist short sellers, or other short sellers have been short. And I noticed one thing about them is that they tend to go down. I feel like the maybe uh, people who are not as familiar with short sellers, they think of short sellers. They only short two stocks, AMC and Tesla, and they're always wrong. But typically, when short sellers short a stock, there tends to be a problem with the stock, and you know the stock tends to go down. Uh, and typically, you know, from what I've learned about activist short selling, the problem isn't that you short stocks that and then they go up. You short them and then the company sues you, right? So can you talk, tell us a little bit about that? And then also, why does the stock go down? Maybe let's take XL Fleet, for example, which, you know, I, you did an interview with my, my good friend Max Weethy on uh, Zero's TV, uh, done via Real Vision. I really recommend people check out um, you know, that, that channel. A lot of good stuff about, about short selling there. And... You, you, you talked about the problems of the company. That company is down, I don't know, 93, 95% over the past year. And I compare it to uh, Sparebank, you know, the, the Russian bank that plunged like 90% overnight uh, because of the, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And I think on a year, on a one-year basis, Excel Fleet is down more than Sparebank. So how is it that a company can go down 93%? And, and you know, is it just the insiders are selling? Is it is it sort of a, a pump a pump and dump game? What's going on there? Okay, so let's start with start with traditional short selling. And so the idea there is, you know, non-activist, um, often for fundamental reasons, maybe some fraud mixed in, but. The idea is that you're shorting a stock because you think that the catalyst, <clears throat> you think the catalyst is near. The one thing to keep in mind about short selling that's totally different from long side investing. You know, long side investing, you want to hold your positions a long time, right? You want to compound. You know, get year over year building the value of that position without having to pay taxes. I mean, very very powerful, um, you know, uh, effect from compounding. Short selling is the opposite. Like you want to get out quickly because the, it's asymmetrical, right? You're not going to make more than 100%. You know, if you're compounding, you want to make, you know, multiple hundred percents over the years, but you can't make more than 100%. You can lose, you know, everything. Um, and you're paying to borrow the stock. So, and you get hit with short-term cap gains regardless of how long you hold the position, even if you hold it for over a year. So there's no profit in holding a short position for a long period of time. So ideally, you wanna put your short position on right before you think the catalyst is going to materialize. And so pre-financial crisis, short sellers were reasonably good at this. You know, it's like, I think this quarter, you know, the earnings are gonna fall apart and you know, investors are gonna see what's really going on and abandon the stock. That was a much easier, much, 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 much easier game to play pre-financial crisis. Financial crisis, the policy response to that was as much cheap credit as we can invent in computer land here. So that allowed companies to string it out. And so all the a lot of these short sellers who were great at timing the catalysts before GFC, you know, they're like, you know, once again, they're doing things. It's this quarter. It's, 
how did they, shit, how did they not, well, it's next quarter. Fuck. Like, and so these things got strung out because debt was so cheap. And so normally, you know, you rely on in traditional short selling, a lot of times you're relying on debt to make your thesis real. But here, you know, like covenants, you know, like covenants got lighter and lesser as time went on past the GFC. So companies just, again, they could string it out. Sorry, of course, if I can just explain that for the audience. So there used to be like binding clauses. If you have less than $50 million in your bank account, we're going to seize this property or something. But it's become more lax. Uh, and as such, you don't get these negative headlines uh, that you know a bank is foreclosing on this company's thing. So therefore, the stock doesn't go down 70% uh, overnight as it used to pre-Great Financial Crisis. Right. There, right. So there are fewer requirements uh, to borrowing the money basically than, than there used to be. And so that enables poor quality companies to continue borrowing um, ad infinitum, uh, essentially. And, you know, they're acquiring things that, you know, so maybe the debt is, you know, a good portion of the debt that they're issuing is really to just stabilize the existing operations. But if you go on a bit of an acquisition binge, you can muddle the financials so nobody can really tell what's going on in the core business versus um, you know, what you're acquiring and trying to integrate and you have an excuse for raising capital. So that's one of the ways that companies post GFC have used debt to, um, you know, to basically cause short theses not to be realized. Now, in activist short land, um, it's pretty interesting. So if you're looking at 2020 onward and I, what you're referring to, um, Breakout Point, which is a short analytics provider, tweeted out a few weeks ago, all of our short calls from Jan 1 of 2020 um, to the present. So the last one that we had was when we shorted uh, B-E-K-E, Ke Holdings, or in Chinese, Bei Ke. When we shorted Bei Ke in December of 2021. And at the time the breakout point tweeted this out, um, 11 of the 12 things that we had shorted uh, publicly were down, and most were down significantly. And I then went for, you know, out of interest, I went to um, a software package that we have, a factor software package that tries to explain like, you know, what's driving movements of stocks. And it tells you basically what the alpha component is and, you know, what the total factor components are. So the, the vast majority, so of the 11 of the 12 that were down, I mean, the alpha in, I think, I think every single one of those was like significant alpha. So even I was, when I saw the breakout point slide, I was like, shit, man. Like, I didn't realize it was like the, you know, like the track record is going this well. Um, Cause it felt a lot harder, you know, like 2020, especially what a brutal year, you know, we thought, I mean, when COVID first hit, so when, before COVID really showed up in the markets, I was of the view that this was going to be a significant economic event. And I saw the complacency. I think it was Evercore in late February had surveyed their institutional clients and a substantial majority said that they didn't think COVID was going to um, be economically significant. And, you know, and that's like the corollary here is that um, this is what over a decade of just ultra cheap money has done. It's, it's anesthetized investors to risk. And this shows up in the lack of risk premia in the markets. And so I was looking at that and I'm saying, okay, this, like, this is wrong. 
And we went and we shorted a bunch of things that we didn't go public on. And, you know, within weeks, by the end of March, so we shorted them end of Feb, beginning of March. By the end of March, you know, like, I mean, we'd made a lot of money. And I'm like, man, this is great. Like, we're not, we're not even slugging it out with companies. There are no, you know, threats of suing us. I'm not getting, you know, you know, not getting fucked with by, you know, pissed off retail investors. And um, that all changed, you know, on, on the markets bottomed, I think, March 20th. And, um, you know, like the, the you know, so many market participants were like, oh, don't fight the Fed, you know, and I know we were the last ones to get the memo. So we kept a number of these positions on through August. And I mean, you know, we thought that, you know, these were our, you know, we're geniuses trades. <laughs> Well, we ended up losing, you know, giving back a lot of the gains on the genius trades or the genius book. And by the, and at the same time, um, we had gone publicly short on a couple of names. One of them was eHealth, which has just massively unwound since then. Um, but the other was a Chinese company that was called GSX, um, now called GoTo. And that should be GoTo Prison, but, you know, it's... <laughs> Chinese frauds don't ever get punished. Like they're not going to prison. Like that's tutoring, right? Tutoring. So it had a huge crash because it got, it, you know, the, the essentially the Chinese Communist Party turned tutoring into a nonprofit business overnight. Well, so they, they had a, well, yeah. So, so a few things here that happened. Okay. So we were not, not the first and not even the second um, reasonably well-known activist short sellers to go public and say this thing is a near total fraud. Um, so the first one was Grizzly Research and the principal there came out of Geo Investing and, you know, they've done, Geo had done a lot of China, China fraud exposés. Then Citron came out with a different way of looking at it. You know, the thing is like all of us activist short sellers were competitors. So, you know, and some, in like this was at, when we first, you know, got turned on to it, I think the market cap was maybe eight, ten billion dollars. And so, you know, we pretty quickly determined that it's likely a substantial fraud, but now we have to go and do the research to prove it, which is data analytics, but it required some field work because we had to register for lots of classes in China and um, in order to be able to run the analytics. And so anyway, you know, we're working on it and here comes Grizzly. And, you know, it's like, you know, headline, like Grizzly Research calls GSX a fraud. And we're like, oh, fuck. And then we read the report. Okay, they, they took a different approach than we did. Theirs is really focused on SAIC filings and, you know, and obviously fraudulent transactions, you know, buying things from undisclosed related parties at inflated prices, like that old chestnut. Okay, we're coming from a different perspective. Let's keep going. Then, um, you know, all of a sudden Citron comes out, you know, and, you know, like, fuck that guy, you know, and like, I mean, we're just furious internally. So like, all right, look at the report. Oh, okay. Um, Actually, you know, he's not coming from the same perspective we are. He's only talking about part of the business. There's something for us to do. But the stock was hanging in after, you know, Grizzly and Andrew had published. And that should have been a warning sign. But here we were thinking like, well, we're muddy fucking waters. Okay, like China frauds. This is what we do. So we went ahead and published on it. And um, I mean, it's maybe 10, 12 billion market cap by then. I, I don't know, give or take. And I mean, it went down initially. But, you know, here we were. I mean, again, like we're in the midst of, you know, on a macro level thinking that we're, you know, geniuses. 
uh, with our genius book that was you know losing money at that point when we shorted a SPAC called MultiPlan. So I think we were the first ones to, you know, in this past, this wave of SPACs to do a SPAC short. Um, then we shorted YY. We ended up having an okay year, but it felt so hard. And I think a lot of that was also just the, the personal angst of watching, you know, I think the world burn during COVID. Going to 2021, GameStop happens right away. Andrew Left says, I'm done with activist short selling, fuck this. Citron Research guy, yeah. Yeah, Citron Research. And if you looked even at the December of 2020, the you know Goldman Sachs most heavily shorted names, I mean, ripped. And they were ripping into January. And, you know, as even as activist short sellers now, we're all wondering, you know, like, are we extinct? And I got all these questions from media and people like, are you, you know, are you going to stay in business? And the irony is, that 2021 turned out to be a great year in activist short selling because, you know, this is something that you know, when I interviewed Andrew Left on Zeros in December before he threw in the towel, he predicted it. He said it was going to be a great year because you have this enormous supply of de-spacked SPACs that have come online and they're just, you know, almost universally crap companies and that the supply of crap companies is greater than the demand for speculative or shit goes. And so when you have a supply demand imbalance, it's going to bring everything down. But it was really hard to appreciate that in early mid February of 2021. And, you know, we were getting ready to launch a new fund that was also active as short selling strategy. Um, and we lost our anchor investor because they had a big allocation of Melvin capital. And so, you know, like, you know, so Melvin got blown up shorting GameStop. I mean, almost went out of business. They dropped, you know, they lost about half their money in, in the month of January. So, you know, our, our, you know, our potential client was like, eh, I don't know about activist short selling. And by the way, we just put more money into Melvin Capital. That That's where your check went. So it sucked, but it's kind of funny. Um, the wind really ended up being at the back, everyone's back in 2021. Um, so we shorted XL Fleet in, I think, late Feb or March of 21. And we were much smaller in that than we should have been because we were very cautious. Like, I don't know, like this could get, you know, we could get blown up. And we ended up closing the position out um, one day when we saw a bunch of out of the money call buying. And we're like, oh shit, like that's how these things get squeezed. Like close it out. You know, and I mean, we, we closed it out much higher than we should have. I mean, we made money on the on the thing, but but yeah, I mean, by the end of the year, um, yeah, these, you know, like the, most of these SPACs were in the toilet and, and yeah, but that's why it was really funny to see at the beginning of 2022 that 11 of our 12 short calls were down and PS, uh, the 12th one is down also now, uh, Bay Cup. Um, that one's finally, you know, I mean, and, and look, YY coming off is not ostensibly for the reasons that we said um, they were going to sell their YY live business to Baidu. And, you know, we're like, all right, look, Baidu knows it's a fraud, you know, so they're buying it anyway. Um, I think Baidu decided to buy it um, before we came out because they figured, well, this thing's been around since 2012 and Baidu probably, I don't know, I thought Baidu might have a fake cash problem that they were trying to solve and that, you know, the headline price here was, you know, higher than what the real money that would change hands was. But the sale didn't go through, um, you know, bad headlines related to China, obviously. 
Um, so, I mean, it's not, it's ostensibly not for the reasons we said it would be, but, um, and GSX as well. But I think, you know, and look, this is maybe me telling myself what I want to hear. But when I, when I talk about GSX or TAL education, which similar field to GSX, which um, also bid it last year, and we had shorted that in 2018 as, you know, like a, you know, like not a fake business, a real business, but with fake financials. Um, you know, my, you know, so when that fell apart last year it was more, I mean, it was linked to government actions in the for-profit education space, as opposed to people saying, yeah. oh, it's a fraud. But yeah, yeah. I guess, and again, maybe this is me telling myself what I want to hear, but the way I put it was, yes, it didn't fall apart because any, you know, auditors confirmed it's a fraud. However, you have to understand that the system that enables these frauds to occur on such wide scale that protects them, um, even when there are you know credible allegations of fraud, that still protects them and shields the auditors and you know creates all these misaligned incentives and you know just this warped carnival funhouse mirror world. That's the same system that you know can yank the rug out from you a few hours before you wake up and you wake up and you look and you're like ah you know like. Uh, what the fuck? They're, you know, they're like hitting my stocks. So again, maybe this is, you know, may, maybe this is me just trying to put a positive short activist spin on it. But, you know, the root cause of all the fraud is the same as the root cause of the capricious actions by the government in this case. So there you have it. So, it, but our track record the past two years is, and like I said, I, I don't, it's just kind of funny. There's been so much news flow and, and craziness that I hadn't even thought about it till I saw that breakout point uh, tweet. Like our numbers, you know, we're our numbers and we're not unhappy, you know, for the most part with our numbers. But that was actually, you know, pretty funny uh, surprise. How much you know excess do you think has been drained out of the, the speculative market, whether it's, you know, the sort of uh, companies that you specifically target or it's, it's the companies that you know, the type of uh, the narrative stocks that you said, the sexy story stocks that maybe your dad would be into in like ARKK. You know, I don't, I don't know how much, you know, I don't think any, you know, I don't know, like round tripping is going on there, but it's just, it's a, it's a lot of promise, you know? Do you, do you think like, you know, ARK has gone from 150 to b below 60? Like, you know, how how much short alpha do you think there, there is yet to be to be realized? When you look at, say, Nikola, Nikola still has a market cap north of $3 billion. And I mean, and this thing's probably a zero. So you can look at it and say, oh man, the stock has come off so much, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it seems to me that when you realize that it still has a market cap north of $3 billion, it's an illustration of that academic research that shows how if you're, if you're in a negotiation, the party who gets to frame the terms, you know, who puts them out there first, kind of anchors expectations there. So Nicola at one time had a truly egregiously inflated, stupid market cap. And I feel like when it's able to maintain a 3 billion market cap, it's because effectively people are comparing it to the market cap that was, and they're saying, well, you know, it's, there's probably no room for it to fall. But I mean, the difference between 3 billion and zero is 3 billion. Like there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of cushion there. Now, does that, you know, does that, does the air come out of that anytime soon? 
very hard to say. Your higher level question, you know, so it was before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it was clear that we were transitioning to a new paradigm in equities. So the paradigm that existed from March of 2009 through, you know, like at some point in 2021, uh, maybe through the end of Q3, was don't fight the Fed. The Fed's always going to pump up financial assets. Like that's what our economic policy has been based on, especially for the past 12 years. But I'd argue thir past 30 years roughly is just this idea that if we inflate financial assets, um, people will take risk and that'll be good for the economy. And it's created a lot of distortions in the economy. It's created this gap between you know the haves and everybody else. But let's put that to the side. The Fed is, you know, has, has signaled that it's going to be raising rates, as have the other central banks. Now, in 2018, they started doing that, and markets cracked hard. And Trump got out there and, you know, was yelling at Powell. And so then, you know, the Fed reversed. But now they're kind of backed into a corner. And, you know, the and there, there's just not really room to not raise because we have inflation. And so the Fed is going to be walking, as are the other central banks, but especially the, the Fed, is going to be walking a real tightrope here because if you tighten too much, then you can throw things into deflation over the medium to long term because you're, it's going to be so, you know, uh, it's going to be so harmful to growth. But if you don't tighten enough, I mean, inflation, you know, it's no longer transitory and it could get really bad. So and that's, of course, that has all kinds of deleterious impacts on society. And if we're talking about haves versus, you know, have nots or almost everybody else, I mean, inflation is what, you know, really, I mean, it's so insidious how it impacts those who are lowest on the economic ladder, um, how it impacts them the most. So. There's a, there's a lot of potential for policy error here to either tighten too much or to remain too loose, which is going to force massive tightening. So you had all of that, and then Russia invaded Ukraine. Now, up to that point, Russia and China, and pretty much everybody else who pays attention to these things, had been assuming that if Russia invades Ukraine, like, you know, the Western you know, nations are going to hem and haw and, you know, like put out some, you know, like put out some statements saying you guys are doing some bad things, but nobody's going to do anything that would stop Steve Schwartzman from making some extra money. Right. Because that's been the paradigm for the past, the you know political and economic paradigm for the past 30 years is like, God forbid, we sacrifice the ability of Nike to sell more sneakers somewhere. But something really, really, really unexpected, I mean, shocking happened. And that is the liberal democracies said, fuck this. And they said, we're going to bear some pain because we want to do what's right morally here. And we don't want to continue to abet immorality. Now, that should it persist. And look, it's not clear that it will persist. But when you watch Germany throw out 30 years of foreign policy in a weekend, Sweden and Finland, you know, talk about joining NATO and everybody saying, hey, you know, we'll pay higher energy prices, even in this inflationary environment, 
because we have to stand up here and do the right thing, this might be a new paradigm. You know, like this might be, and I don't know, and if it sticks, sociologists will study this period in the future and there will be, I'm sure, competing narratives about it. But I mean, it's possible that in our liberal democracies, most of which are facing real threats from authoritarianism, you know, here in the US, we have both right-wing authoritarians and left-wing, but the right-wing's bigger by number of people. Maybe this, maybe there was just something that snapped in inside Western democracies where we said, enough, fuck this. Like, let's get back to principle. So if that's the case, if now going forward, we're willing to sacrifice the financial interests of the top 0.1% of society to do the right thing, I think this has profound impacts on the market. And, you know, one of the things that I'm also talking about is, well, we now accept universally that we shouldn't enable Russian oligarchs because they are the enablers of Putin and his regime. Well, what's the other potential flashpoint out there that, you know, is really closely intertwined or intertwined with our economy and our markets. That's China and Taiwan. So China has its oligarchs. These are people who float stocks in the US or in Hong Kong, but we're enabling them. We're providing bids for their securities, you know, for their stocks, making them wealthy. We provide liquidity for them. We sell Chinese companies our technologies all the time and our technology companies, should we still, when China has overtly stated that it will retake Taiwan by force, which unlike Ukraine really will impact the way we live and our access to chips and technology, you know, another democracy being subsumed by, you know, a, by, a, by a dictator. But beyond that, this one will have tangible impacts that Ukraine wouldn't have. Um, I mean, shouldn't we start this conversation about, well, you know, let's not enable China's oligarchs who are enabling the, the Communist Party and Xi Jinping to act aggressively toward Taiwan. And another point there is, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier in the interview about um, the post-GFC uh, policy basically anesthetizing everybody to risk. You know, I made a comment about the risk premia in markets because there's this notion, you know, at the time of the GFC and the responses to it, there was concern that we were creating moral hazard. And we really did create moral hazard. And we did it, I mean, we really increased that after COVID because all these companies, especially private equity backed that had really fragile balance sheets that were crumbling or public companies that had fragile balance sheets because they bought back all this stock after issuing debt, we wiped their asses clean. Because again, why should Steve Schwartzman and those people suffer any losses um, you know, due, to, you know, due to catastrophes in the wider world or economic mismanagement? So this moral hazard that's existed, if, this, if we're now going away from this, then what we need to do is we need to make sure that the pricing of risky assets, you know, e.g. Chinese equities, 
reflects adequate risk premia to signal there's risk here. And that's one of the problems with, with Russia. You have these commodity firms that um, you know, have gotten, you know, because they're effectively when they're long in, you know, they're long and they're short at the same time, trying to capture a spread. This is not risky, but they're long nickel that they wanted to buy and take delivery from from Russia and they sold it forward. Well, a bunch of these firms, you know, had they not reversed the trades would have been blown up and, and other businesses are obviously getting hit much harder than they than they thought. And you can say, well, maybe they should be bailed out because they didn't see this coming. You know, how could they have prepared? That's a valid point. But why didn't they see this coming? Because the risk wasn't priced in because the, mon the, the monetary policy, the economic policy has been to suppress risk premia. And that's the market falsely signaling how much risk there is or is not in these assets. So it's time for Chinese assets to adequately reflect the risk in their pricing that China moves on Taiwan and we've got a really nasty situation there. And what would, with that uh, geopolitical risk premium applied to China, how, what, what would that do to the price of, I don't know, the, the Chinese index, MCHI, that ETF, or Alibaba, Baidu, or some of the more speculative stuff that y you act actively follow? Well, I mean, presumably, in order for there to be risk premium, the valuations need to compress on these. And even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there was a huge valuation gap between Russian equities and Chinese equities, Russian equities and U.S. equities. Um, but we need to see, you know, we need to see a bigger gap between, I mean, in many cases, Chinese equities have been more richly valued than U.S. equities because they're growing, the companies are growing so fast because China's growing so fast. Which to me, I mean, just getting back on, you know, like these these rants, I mean, to me, that's one of the, you know, one of the great like lies of modern finance, because we know, I mean, any, you know, like observers know that the Chinese GDP numbers are not real GDP numbers. And, you know, but we have this conversation where, you know, we'll say, yeah, 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 like I know that, the you know, those numbers aren't real. There are a bunch of issues with them. But China's growing really fast. We have to invest there. And I and it's the same thing with the companies. I mean, I think the smart money in China knows slash expects that these companies are generally committing some level of fraud. There's some level of revenue inflation, but it's harmless. You know, they'll grow into it. Um, that's basically the, the justification or the rationalization. So... These, these assets from China really should, you know, their valuation should compress to reflect the geopolitical risks inherent. And it's important that they do, not just to send a signal of increased riskiness to, you know, for, for markets to adequately signal risk, but it's important to send that message now to China, China's oligarchs and Xi Jinping, because that was the miscalculation that Putin made. And look, we it's good that we're that Putin made a miscalculation, right? It's good that the West has found its backbone and is standing up. But clearly the situation would have been much better if there had been no miscalculation in the first place. If it was clear at the outset that the West still did have the moral center that would mean that it would stand up to the aggression. 
but that wasn't reflected in asset prices, business practices, economic policies. So we should, and if we want to protect Taiwan, we should make sure that that starts showing up in, you know, in asset prices so that Xi Jinping can see like, all right, like the West has found its moral center. You know, they're, they're not going to take this one lying down. Maybe it's not worth it for us. Carson, it's been great having you here. As we approach a close, uh, can you just tell us what do you see the the uh, of the role of activists short selling in the investing ecosystem? You know, like what you know, what would a uh, you know what would the world look like in which people didn't know that, for example, that Nikola was rolling down the hill and that the the, en the engine didn't actually work? Since the invention of the iPhone, I'm not going to relate this to the global financial crisis, but the two almost coincided. But um, the human attention span has greatly shrunk and um, newsroom budgets have been slashed. And, um, you know, so there used to be some investigative financial journalism or, you know, reasonable amount of it. There's very little left because it's just long form, deep dive journalism is just not profitable under the traditional journalism models. So that gap is really you know, the, I mean, the, the only thing trying to fill that gap is activist short selling, which I argue is investigative financial journalism married to a non-traditional revenue model. And I think it's the only revenue model that will cover, that will pay for investigative financial journalism, um, especially in an environment where companies have over the years become emboldened and increase, increasingly aggressive about threatening lawsuits and actually suing. So right now, um, you know, it's there, you know, there's an investigation into a, what seems to be a substantial majority of the activist short selling industry. Um, and that includes us. And I look, I'm, I'm baffled. I mean, if, you know, if somebody went out and said, okay, you know, we have concerns about, you know, one or two or three of the players in this industry. Okay. You know, look, maybe not everybody's doing everything the way they should. You know, it's like in equity long short, there are people who are trading on inside information, like, you know, but the vast majority are not. But when you put this many activist short sellers um, under the microscope, I mean, this, you know, and, and it's and it's happening in the US. And I, I just didn't think, you know, we've we've seen this in Germany, you know, where we've been through some shit in Germany. We've seen this in France where we went through some shit in France. This wasn't supposed to happen in the United States. It's, you know, the supposed to have the most sophisticated regulators in the world in terms of short act or in terms of short selling. These regulators have successfully made numerous cases um, on the back of research that activist short sellers have published. And we have the First Amendment. So, look, I'm baffled, but I'm I got to tell you, this is a real threat to the last vestiges out there of uh, financial investigative journalism. I mean, if, you know, if this industry goes, you don't really have anything and because, you know, left to, to investigate companies and, you know, and find wrongdoing. Um, there'll be very little, uh, very little of that. So, um, you know, in a way, also the powers that be are cutting off their noses to spite their faces because we have been a pipeline for um, investigations and, uh, and successful action. So, I don't know. It, the the future in many respects, you know, market in terms of markets and also for our industry is is unclear at this point.
Carson, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, people want to learn more about your work. They can follow, they get uh, your reports, which we can maybe link a few in uh, Muddy, uh, Muddy Waters Research. And then also on Twitter, you can be found at Muddy Waters Read. Carson, thanks so much. Thanks, Chad.